This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Church in Montgomery in Colmar, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series called Unstoppable, our study in the book of Acts. We're still in Acts chapter 2 because there's so many things happening there. And this morning, the title of the message is Devoted. Let me ask you, uh, what, is, what does devotion mean to you? If, if you had to give an example, what would be one of the best examples you can think of, of devotion? What kind of a picture pops into your head? Maybe it's of a mother and a child, or a newly wedded couple. Maybe it's of a sports team. I know some of you. Yeah, Eagles are doing well. I want to say that out loud because how often do we get a chance to say that? My wife and I, our family lived in Dallas, Texas for a while. Yeah, so we had our fill, believe me. You, you have no idea. Uh, we had our fill of Cowboys devotion, and, and it is a little ridiculous. Um, the church where we were attending, uh, one of the guys in the church had been saving up, and uh, he finally got really amazing seats at a pretty significant game, and he was so excited. And, uh, uh, but when he was there, he got there, and he was so conscious of how much that seat cost him. He started feeling a little embarrassed. And, and then he looked a few rows down from him, and he realized that in, in probably the prime 50-yard line, there, there's a guy sitting, this old guy sitting there, and there was a seat empty. And, and so my friend was thinking to himself, who in the world can afford to, to get season tickets like that and then leave it empty? That's just, it just boggled his mind. Like He kept thinking to himself, I could have saved all that money and just come and sat right there. So actually, during a break in the game, he actually walked down and talked to the guy. said, hi, how you doing? Listen, I couldn't help but realize, like, what's the empty seat for? And this lifetime Cowboys fan explained that he and his wife had been going to every single game for decades together. It was one of those real special things. Since she passed away, um, he had to come alone. Of course, my friend was mortified. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for your loss. Man, this must be so hard. And then my friend said, you know, I find it surprising. Couldn't you get like somebody else in your family to come and sit with you since your wife can't be here? And he says, I tried, but they're all at her funeral. So how do, how, do you, how do you define devotion? What does it look like when it happens? Do you notice it when you see it? And does it exist in your life? Well, in our study of the book of Acts, we have seen some things happen that are amazing. Jesus ascends, the, the, the disciples go to the upper room, they're waiting for that gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, descends with the noise and the tongues and the languages and a crowd is gathered because of all that commotion, and Peter stands up and he, he preaches what is really the first evangelistic sermon in the New Testament. And he lets them have it. He, he doesn't pull any punches. He says, you're responsible for this. He talks about their sin and Jesus' death for them. And they responded. They were, they were cut to the quick, it says, convicted. And they said, what, what, what can we do? And so then he begins to present the gospel. You need to put your faith in Christ. And then follow that up. 
by becoming a follower of his. It's a pretty powerful scene. Now, we know that the book of Acts is going to kind of trace the ongoing work of Jesus. From the Spirit's arrival, and in Acts 1.8, we saw the outline for the book, didn't we? Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem. And that'll take us all the way up to about uh, chapter 7, the end of chapter 7. And in Judea, Samaria... And so we're going to watch the gospel move geographically from Jerusalem and then out to this, outer, this next area, Judea, Samaria. And that'll go from maybe chapters 8 to 11. And then to the outer furthest reaches of the earth. And that's the rest of the book from 11 to, to the end of 28. So the book is actually kind of a geographical, follows that geographical movement. We're still in Jerusalem. Peter has just preached. 3,000 people just accepted Christ and became a part of the church. So when those 3,000 people believed and became a part of the church, what is it that they became a part of? This thing called the church. This thing that we kind of take for granted now. But when we go back and look at the beginning, we're reminded that this was the first time that the Holy Spirit would take up residence in believers in the way that we have come to know it. This had never happened before. This group of people, they weren't just uh, faithful devotees of Jehovah. They were actually filled with his spirit. And together, they made a very unique group called the church. Now, sometimes when people talk about the early church, the New Testament church, they talk about it like that was the ideal church. Every church should try to be like the New Testament church. I just want to go on record saying I'm not sure that's actually accurate. The, the church that we're going to read about this morning, it's no more ideal than a baby is an ideal person. Now, we like babies. They're really cute. They get more irritating as they grow. <laughs> At least if, if they're yours. But nobody thinks that the, the best ideal person is one who stays a baby. This was a baby church, not the ideal church. In fact, there are so many things that are going to change about the church, even in the book of Acts. We're going to notice, for instance, uh, as the church matures and grows, at the beginning, right now, as it just starts, we read that they were gathering every day. The truth is, they're not going to continue that. By the time we get to Acts 20, it says they're, they're meeting weekly. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, when you guys, when you meet every week, so they're meeting every day, but that won't last. Uh, this early church, for instance, they seem so dependent on the apostles, right? The, it's the apostles who are giving the teaching, and it's the apostles who are doing the leading. And yet, as the church matures, the church doesn't need apostles. Instead, it's led by pastors and elders and deacons and gifted people. That's what it looks like to mature as a church. We're going to read this morning that they were selling property and taking the money and just giving it right to the apostles to distribute however they want. None of you want to do that and give, just put a big pile of money here for me. And rightly so. Later in the church, instead of just selling stuff randomly and just giving it to the apostles to, to distribute how they see fit, as the church matures, Paul tells the church, hey, when you meet weekly, 
before you get together, decide ahead of time how the Lord has prospered you, and you should give joyfully as the Lord enables you, and you do it every week. Kind of interesting that we're going to read that this church, this ideal baby church, that they, they had the approval of everybody in town. Isn't that nice? That won't last either. It won't be long before those same people who are giving approval will be chasing them out of town. There's no real outreach plan. There's no missionary endeavor yet. In fact, the church that we're going to look at, it was completely Jewish. None of us would be welcome. In fact, right here, what we're going to read, that idea of reaching out to Gentiles and others, they really hadn't even thought about it. The church isn't, it's not just the church that matures, the apostles are going to mature, aren't they? Later, we're going to read in Acts 10 and 11 and 13 about Peter having a vision. No, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat that. God says, well, eat it. Oh, no. What do you think? Well, you're not getting it. And then he goes over to the centurion's house and when they, when they experience, wait a minute, this isn't just for Jews anymore. This is for everyone. So the whole church is going to grow. It's normal for churches to grow and mature. That's what we see here. So one last question before we get into the text. If what we're going to read today about this new body of believers, the, the, the church, if what we're going to read was really specifically about a baby church, then how do we gain benefit from reading about it? What is it that, how is it that it can help us? Well, I think all of you are familiar with our, our constitution, the document that is the foundation of our government and our country. So the constitution is important. Let me ask you a question. Over the years since the constitution has been written, has our tendency been to add more things to it or take things away from it? Yeah, add. There are no constitutional deletions that we know of, but there's plenty of amendments, aren't there? The truth is that the Constitution was a fine document, and then as time goes on, we tend to add things. Does that mean that looking or reading the Constitution is useless? Not at all. You see, when we look at just the Constitution and kind of oh, just don't, don't pay attention to all those amendments and all those additions, when we look at just that first document, what we see is what was at the core, the heartbeat of a new nation, what the values were from the very beginning. In fact, sometimes the best way to understand some of those amendments and those other additions is to go back and just read that first document. All those other things should serve that foundational understanding. As we look at this text today, that's what we're doing. We are looking at the founding of a church in its baby form. And what we're going to notice is, if there was one word we were going to use to describe them, it would be devoted. They were devoted. In fact, we're going to look at four foundational objects of their devotion. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 41, kind of the verse that we left off last week. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. If you're using one of those blue hardcover Bibles, I think it's page 1078 or 1079 right in there. Let's read. 
Verse 41, and those who accepted his message were baptized, about, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions, and they gave it to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, there you have it. Now, this isn't the only description of the new church. In fact, Luke, in, in the book of Acts, gives at least seven or eight kind of summary descriptions of the church. And that's, that's an interesting study all by itself, just to look at how those summary statements change as the church matures and as it moves geographically. This is the first one. This is our picture of the constitution, the, the founding. And how many times did you see it represented there? Their devotion to four foundational objects. The first one, it says, is the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is kind of interesting. Um, if, you, if you're a church person, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are probably pretty familiar with many of Jesus' teachings. You could perhaps recount one of those stories perhaps some of the parables. You could even quote snippets of the Sermon on the Mount or, or some other little teaching vignette. The truth is, we have lots of information about what Jesus taught. What's interesting is, we have absolutely no information in the book of Acts about what the apostles taught. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So what was the apostles' teaching? Well, some of you are smart. You're saying, well, wait a minute. Peter just gave some of it. Yes, he did. That, that sermon that we just looked at last week is a great example. You see, the, the apostles' teaching included this message of redemption. The message that this whole thing that has just happened in time and space, this Jesus, this person who actually existed, you crucified him, should be in a document somewhere. He was resurrected. If not, where did his tomb go? Where's his body? He ascended and he sent the spirit. You guys saw that happen. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the power. It's been confirmed. This Jesus died for your sins. He offers eternal life to all who would receive it. And he doesn't just end with redeeming individuals. He redeems us and then makes us part of his body, the church. And the church's mission is to continue to reach out. And one day, Jesus will return, establish a kingdom, and fix what is wrong with creation. But since the problem started in the heart of one person, it's no surprise that the solution starts in the hearts of individual people. Well, so the apostles' teaching certainly included the gospel. But what else? As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see little things develop as they begin to explain things. Stephen's sermon, he's going to explain some things. Philip talking to a, an unbeliever, 
He's going to begin to explain things and apply things. We're going to begin to understand what it is that the apostles have been teaching. Sometime later in church history, church leaders gathered together all of that teaching, the apostles' teaching, and they called it the teaching. Have you gone through the teaching class? Have you attended the teaching seminar? Have you been exposed to the teaching? Now, the word that, that the, the, they didn't use the teaching, the, the Greek word was from the word didaskalos, teaching. It was called the didache. Strange looking word, isn't it? But what, all that means is the teaching. The teaching of what? This is what Jesus taught the apostles and what the apostles taught those who were following them. And when you boil it all down, and we don't have time today, we'll cover it sometime. But when you boil it out and down, the didache, the teaching of the, the apostles' teaching, it came down to seven points. One was that if you put your faith in Jesus, you, you try to put off the old nature and resist sinful practices. Secondly, you try to put on the new nature and by God's Spirit's power, produce the fruit of the Spirit. Thirdly, it says that you seek to have appropriate relationships with those in your family. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Parents, love and discipline your children. Children, be wise and obey your parents. It was a core piece. You can't expect anybody to understand grace if it can't even happen in our homes. So the right family relationships. The, the next point in the didache was to have the right relationship with other believers. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Number five in the didache was to have proper relationships or a proper interaction with, with uh, unbelievers. See, they were walking this line before they'd been this separate group. Now they are set apart for Christ and yet to love and to, to pursue the lost. And so the didache included how is it that we're supposed to react and respond to non-believers with love, but also a sense of careful. The sixth point had to do with your relationship with government and authority. We're not the only ones that sometimes wonder what in the world our government is doing. Did you know that your Christian faith has quite a bit to say about how we're supposed to respond to those who are in authority above us? That was part of the apostles' teaching. And the last point had to do with spiritual, um, being spiritually awake, spiritually watchful, realizing that there's a battle going on and that we have to listen to the Spirit and make wise decisions as we move forward. Anyway, that would be the didache. That's the apostles' teaching. Basically, when they were, when they were committed or devoted to the apostles' teaching, what that meant was they kept talking about what Jesus had taught. And they kept looking for ways that it applied to their lives. So if Jesus said that, what am I supposed to do? If Jesus modeled that, how am I supposed to respond? Being devoted to the apostles' teaching means that the scriptures were always at the center every time God's people gathered. It was the source of their direction. So they were committed to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, we can get behind this. Yes, pie, food, coffee, good coffee. 
In verse 44, it says that uh, they were all together. And we talked before about this sense of unity that they had. The word fellowship really has some, a, a couple of meanings that are, are helpful. One of them has to do with joint participation. Fellowship is joint participation. In that sense, going to a major league game is not fellowship with your team. Because you're, you're watching it, right? You're, but you're not jointly participating. Although that would explain the, the face makeup and the haircuts and the outfits and the, the cheers. In that sense, we are trying to participate a little bit, right? Joint participation. Sharing in common. A partnership. That's really what fellowship means. Working together. It means being engaged. Now, why is this important? Because in our culture, it's, it's fairly easy. We try to make it comfortable for you. It's pretty easy to kind of slide into church, sit in the back, be an observer, slide back out. You don't really, we, we don't have to engage with this if we don't want to. Fellowship means not just attending. It means engaging with. It's kind of like the difference between, you know, let's say uh, your neighbors are moving. You tried to be out of town, but you couldn't help it. So you're home and they're moving. It's one thing to stand out on your front porch and watch them move. Mm, I hate that. Mm. Where do people get all this stuff? Wow. They should have burned that couch. Yeah. You know, right? It's one thing to stand out there and watch and comment. It's a completely different thing to walk over and say, how can I help? And as soon as you offer to help, suddenly then you're trying to figure out what piece goes next, where does it go, and you play that little game and you try to put things in. And before you know it, you're engaged with the move. You're not just observing it. That's the meaning of fellowship. Now, in the text that we're looking at, there's a lot of different things that are said. Fellowship can include several different aspects. One of the things that we saw was eating, right? In verse 42 and a couple times in verse 46, it talked about having meals together. And, and that makes perfect sense. First, pragmatically, right? You're going to have to eat anyway. But it was so much more than that. In this culture, eating together was an intimate act. And honestly, if it weren't for... Okay, so, so going through drive through maybe isn't an intimate act, okay? But as we come up to the holidays and we start thinking about having meals together, that definition you're not really tempted to do as takeout too often. And even if you do, if you bring it in, you still set the table and what, what's the point? Everyone is there and you share it together. There's something powerful and intimate about eating together. It's foundational to a relationship. Another thing that was involved with fellowship, it says that they... They were together with glad and sincere hearts, verse 46. Glad and sincere hearts. They actually enjoyed being together. Now, the truth is, we don't enjoy everyone equally. I realize that some of you are having in-laws over Thanksgiving. Okay? So we're praying for you. It can be, it can be, it can be testy. It can be tense. In fact, while you're sitting at that holiday meal with those, the people from the other side of your family that are crazy, right? And you're wishing, you're wishing this thing would get over quick. I want you to stop and say, who do I wish was here? 
Who is it that when I have them over, nothing can go wrong? It's fun, and we laugh, and it's not awkward, and it's safe. And before I know it, the night's over, and I'm like, oh my goodness, God, bye, let's do this again. That's what it means to engage in fellowship. They had glad and sincere hearts. They really enjoyed being together. Verse 45 mentions that they, they shared things. Now, that word sharing is an interesting word. In the New Testament, uh, in Philippians, uh, we read about sharing in the Holy Spirit. And uh, also Philippians and 1 Peter, there's, there's sharing in the sufferings of Christ. There's, there's sharing in ministry in Galatians 6. So there's a couple different uses of this idea of sharing. But if you line up every use of this word in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, most of them refer to one thing. Sharing. One thing. It refers to sharing financial resources. More than anything else, when it talks about sharing, it's about having a practical ministry to others around us. And anyone who knows what Jesus taught can't be surprised by that. In fact, just so you understand that this idea of sharing financially with others, with, with the church and with others who have need, just so you know that it's not something that we pastors cook up because we need a salary. Let me just do a really quick review. Open your Bibles to Romans 12, 13, or right here. Romans 12, 13, part of this command from Paul writing to the church in Rome is, share with the Lord's people and all who are in need. Galatians 6, nevertheless, the one who receives the instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Acts 4, another one of these summary passages, says, and all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's Grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sale and they put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anybody who had need. Actually, this all came from Jesus, didn't it? Earlier in his first account in the Gospel of Luke, Luke recorded Jesus saying this. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor, he says to his disciples. Provide your purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In fact, remember, uh, that rich young ruler came to Jesus and he goes, hey, I've, been, I've obeyed all the law. I've, I've got all my boxes checked. I'm good, right? And Jesus said, uh, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And of course, he declined. What we read in the scriptures is that believers, people who've really been changed by grace, they don't decline. They say, Sure, you bet. This is so easy to talk about. When it comes to people who have needs, Crossroads has such a heart. Uh, oh, 
general giving, we're behind what we budgeted. God takes care of that. Many of you will want to give. You, as we come to the end of the, the year, there are generous people who say, I've, I've been so blessed, and a portion of it comes back to the church, and the church then expands to other ministries. But every time somebody approaches Crossroads because they have a need, we know that if it's determined that we want to help them, the money will be there. Every time. That's what the gospel and grace does. It transforms us into people who share. Now, if we are a people who share, it makes sense to think we're also going to be a people who are poor. So we're all glad that you know, we're not really, really spiritual, right? Because then we'd be completely poor. You don't know Jesus at all, do you? That's not how he rolls. In fact, more often than not, when believers have demonstrated that they do trust in Christ and that out of generosity, they want to give to others and do so generously, Jesus makes sure they've got what they need to do that. That's been my experience. So fellowship meant eating together and and having great fellowship uh, relationships together, and sharing, especially financial resources. They were devoted to fellowship, not just going out for lunch, real fellowship. It included sacrifice. Thirdly, the breaking of bread. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, I don't know what you think of. We're going to take the Lord's table today. Most of the time when this phrase is used in the New Testament, it it often refers to actually just having a meal. Some of you will say that, hey, let's break bread together, right? This idea of breaking bread can mean simply having a meal. And, and we just saw that, that eating together was a part of fellowship. So certainly they were committed to that. But also the breaking of bread had this other layer of meaning. When they would break bread together, it could also be referring to the Lord's table. Remembering communion. Is that probably part of this? I think certainly. Can you imagine these new believers gathering together and somebody mentioning Jesus and they think back to what he did, his sacrifice, and there's bread and a cup and they say, let's remember. So the bread is broken and the cup is shared. It was a part of fellowship, yes, But here we're going to make a little transition. Breaking bread was also a part of worship. What we did earlier, that was worship. What we're doing now, I hope, is worship. What you do next ought to be worship. It includes stopping and giving thought to the sacrifice Jesus made. To having elements as symbols to take them into our bodies as though it were the first time. To relive that. The breaking of bread. Verse 43, it says that all the people were caught up with a sense of awe. In verse 46, it says that they they were together in homes and in the temple courts. Verse 47 says they were praising God. All of those things are descriptive of worship. Is worship 
just something you do 15 minutes on a Sunday morning? Or is worship sort of an overflow? And I understand it's emotional. Some of you say, well, I'm just not really emotional. Okay, I understand that. But if this doesn't, thinking about Jesus dying for you, if that's, this doesn't make you emotional, think about it some more. Ask God to send something into your life to remind you where you would be without him. He will. I remember a time in my life when I'd been following the Lord and I felt kind of secure. And then all of a sudden something happened. It got very dark. Everything, maybe it was a depression. I don't know what you'd call it. But I just felt like the Lord withdrew. I confessed sin. That took a while. Believe me, this is me. I confessed sin and, and I talked to friends and I read my Bible and I remember just feeling like, I just felt like he had left. I was really struggling. And I talked to one man, kind of a mentor, and he reminded me of one of the desert fathers. And he said, Mike, is it possible that the Lord has, has actually withdrawn from you for a reason? Why? so that you realize how needy you are? Is it possible that he wanted you to know that thirst? And I begin to tremble. And that didn't last. The Lord kind of showed up again in my life. So again, maybe it was clinical. Uh, Maybe it was... uh, Bad Chinese food. I don't know. But it was over a period of time. So it came and it left. But what it taught me was how much I need him. Not just as an idea, not just as a guiding philosophy. I need the spirit of God to make Jesus known to me as a person. Ever since then, sometimes I cry, like a little baby. Some of you do too. You're getting older, you cry. I noticed. But can I challenge you? Ask the Spirit to make you so aware of your need that it fills your heart with emotion. Ask him to fill you with joy that you just can't contain. If, you ha- if he has to, ask him to fill you with pain that only he can remove. Ask him to take everything away so that you understand why the only thing you need is him. These new baby believers, this baby church, they seem to clearly understand what it meant to worship. To be so centered on Christ and so caught up that this alone gave their lives purpose. We have so much. Lastly, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what it says, to prayer. Although that's not what the Greek text actually says. The Greek text is a little different. It says, it has the definite articles there. It says, the prayers. Which... It's interesting. I don't think dedicated, being devoted to prayer is wrong, but it says the prayers. Now, 
Obviously, in all of this worship and all of these times relationally and, and giving to, to the needs of others, you can imagine, right, that prayer is just oozing from them. Something goes well. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you so much for it. And something goes wrong. Lord, you know this. You know that. And, and just lifting everything constantly to him. It, it became a reflexive act. You touch something hot and you pull your hand away. The believer faces a challenge and they go to their knees. So yes, personal prayers, personal devotional prayer time, a personal response to circumstances and crises. But the prayers also seems to indicate something more formal. In fact, it says in the temple courts, remember, this was all Jewish church right now. I think they were still going to all the Jewish prayer times just like they did before. But now, now it has such meaning. Some of you have had that experience. You went to church as a young person blah, 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 blah. And then you come to faith. Now you go back and you go, well, I didn't even, I didn't even catch this. Such meaning. And I suppose that those prayers certainly dovetailed with the taking of the Lord's table and with worship. Do you get the picture? This baby church was a hot spiritual mess. They were so new in their faith. They, they hardly got anything right. They had to keep running back to the apostles teaching. Wait, 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 wait. Is that right? But everything that happened, they would come together and say, oh my goodness, yes. And everything that happened to each other, they could see how Jesus was using that. It was like, it was like he, Jesus, was the center of their universe. Would the church mature? We've covered that. It would. Is maturing always a good thing? I'm not so sure. We don't have time this morning, but if, if I were to go through all of the epistles, like I thought I was going to do until I realized that we'd be here for three hours, we could go through all the epistles, and guess what? Everything that we've read about, each of the, the writers in the epistles, Paul and Peter and others, they all address them over and over again. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. This is how to conduct yourselves toward those who are outside. Love one another. Be hospitable. Don't stop fellowshipping together over and over and over again. It's like all of that encouragement is saying, go back to X2. A hot spiritual mess. Their hearts are right on their sleeves. Because Jesus is just that real. So, according to this, the church started, the church started being centered on God's word. It, it was practicing celebratory worship. Now, good for you, you don't have to clap to celebrate, but, but it's celebratory. Promoting caring relationships. Not just, oh, hey, it's good to see you. It includes sacrifice. Reflexive in prayer. It means so much to me when I share something, a struggle, anything with someone, and they say, no, no, no let's pray now. Let's pray now. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, of course. Let's pray now. Try that with a cashier sometime. Somebody else who says, yeah, well, this and that, and they'll say, oh, no. Can, do you have a second? Can I pray with you? 
just can't help it. It's a reflect. It's a reflex. And finally, meeting practical needs wherever they can. Sometimes when we help people through our love and action ministry, people will say, they always say thank you, and then they'll say, you guys are just such good people. And I'm pretty quick to say, not really. I mean, no, no, you are. No, no, we're not. We're not good people, and we don't do this because we are good people. We do this because this is what we learned from Jesus, and we want to be like him. This is me, not a good person, trying to act a little more like Jesus. That's what this is. The person that you want to be interested in is Jesus. This church had a distinct culture. They were committed and consistent, by the way. It says every day this was a part of their lives. They had a strong sense of community. Sometimes we have competing communities. We just saw something on the news about the roller derby championship. We've got a friend who does roller derby or golf or, or whatever it is that you do, hike. But is that community my predominant community? You are. They had a spontaneous reflex. Nobody had to tell them what to do. They just kind of responded and, and did what felt right. They tried to, even if it was wrong, they, they just responded. They had this vibrant sense of celebration. They were really filled. It didn't take them 25 minutes to work up a little, amen, because they were so aware of everything that God had done. By the way, um, you know what happens when churches get infantile like this? Well, let's see. Um, they were healthy on the inside. They were uh, attractive on the outside. They were filled with joy. People were continually coming to faith. And God seemed to show up all over the place. I don't know. I wouldn't mind being in a church like that. How about you? So let me ask you this question. Is your devotion showing? And I'm not saying that your devotion to Jesus, that's a given if you're a believer. Is your devotion to your church showing? Have you learned to say, them people, they are my people. They're the most important people in my life. I would give the shirt off my back and any one of them would do the same for me. And I love being together, whatever the excuse is. And every time I'm there, somebody somehow reminds me of how good Jesus has been and it makes me want to follow him better. Those are my people. Why would anyone want to miss a Sunday? Why would anybody want to miss a Bible study? Why would anybody... We, we all have things going on in our lives. We're just looking at how it started. A hot spiritual mess. So now we're going to come to the Lord's table. Now, if, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, don't has, you don't have to take these elements. Just let them pass by. But here we have this opportunity. There is nothing especially moving about a little piece of cracker and a little cup of juice. The song that Ben's going to lead us in does talk about communion. The words aren't so powerful as to make you and I respond against our will. And so I want to encourage you.
to open your heart and to prepare yourself to respond to the story of these elements, which is his body was broken and his blood was shed for you. As the servers come forward, let me just lead us in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, before you went to the cross, you sat with your disciples. You broke bread. You instructed them to do this in remembrance of you. That was before you had died. I, I can only imagine what it was like for those disciples after all those things had happened and you had ascended to the Father for them to find themselves sitting around that table and bread about to be broken and a chill runs down their spine when it becomes obvious to them that you saw their future and ours. Only your spirit can help us find in these small elements and in in this act a connection back to you. And so I ask, Spirit of God, that you would move through your people, that you would free our hearts, that we would be transported back to that moment when we first understood what you did for us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.